Go ahead and grab a seat, and if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 31. Exodus 31 is going to be what's going to carry us today, and just a small portion of that. Um, I'm excited about this chapter um, for a bunch of different reasons, and I think of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that's what Paul um, says in Ephesians, of all the spiritual blessings we have in Jesus, I think my favorite one is rest. I think that's my favorite treasure of all the treasures. When Jesus says in Matthew, I think Matthew 11, when he says, come to me all who are weary and under heavy burden, and I will give you rest. There's just something about that that just doesn't ever get tired. I've been a Christian for over 20 years, and every time I read it, it feels like I'm reading it for the first time, right? I can't say that about every passage, but that one really hits home every time. But exactly what does that look like? If we were to be practical, I mean, really specific, What does it look like for Jesus to bring rest to us? I mean, on Tuesday and on Saturday morning, what does it look like specifically? Maybe just as a quick disclosure, we are not going to do a detailed dive on chapters 28, 29, and 30. Um, We left off uh, somewhere before that on last week. That is mainly going to talk about how the priests would dress themselves the different stones and the Urim and the Thummim and the turban. Um, And it also talks about how the priests would consecrate themselves with the oil over the head to ready them for ministry. We're not going to talk about that, not because there's nothing to mine. There's a lot in those chapters, and there's a lot that points to Christ in those chapters. But I want to zoom in really tight on the end of chapter 31. And this is going to be in verse 12. So jump in with me. We're going to be in 31.12. This is going to be the word of the Lord. We're going to see Christ very clearly today. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Uh Uh-oh. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Just in case you didn't catch it the first time. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. He says it a third time. A third time. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Even today? It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Okay, what God is saying is with everything that we've talked about, the tabernacle, the priests, the offerings, what they wore, what they did, with everything that we've discussed, above all, the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath or die. That's what we're supposed to pull out of this, right? Working when you should be resting now has a capital offense attached to it. And death, I mean, death seems pretty hardcore, right? That's supposed to stand out a little bit. It seems like a heavy repercussion for something like messing around 
with the day of Sabbath, with rest. God is defining work for them, and he's defining rest, and he's doing something else. He's defining what it means to rely, and that's what we're going to pick up today, rely. But here's the obvious question that you should have is, are we bound to keep the Sabbath? He said forever, twice. Is this something that we are supposed, I mean, sure, taking a Sabbath is helpful, resting, it charges us, I get that, but did it die out at the cross like sacrifices did, like priests, like some of the ordinances that we've been slow walking through? Are we still supposed to do this? And if we do decide to do it, how is that supposed to look today, right? These are all very normal questions. Listen, when I was 22, I was talking to some of our pastoral residents this morning. When I was 22, I was a pastor. And if you're thinking to yourself, Luke, that is way too young to be a pastor, you would be right. I shouldn't have been. I don't even know if 32 I should have been a pastor, right? But I was, and here's the thing, being saved for about a year, I didn't know very much. I didn't have what you would call a foundation, theologically. I didn't know what a bone or meat was. I didn't know what to spit out and what to eat because I was just a young Christian. And I remember zipping around Lubbock, Texas, which is where I lived, in my 1991 Red Ford Escort hatchback, right? Because that's what the cool... That's what the cool kids drove back then. And there were no podcasts. There was no such thing as a podcast because there there was no such thing as a device that would play the podcast. My car didn't even have a digital interface. It just had knobs. We just had knobs back then, okay? So I didn't even know what to listen to because I had been a Christian for such a small amount of time. All I'd listened to my whole life or when I was heavy into music was 90s rap. I listened to 90s rap like it was going out all the time. It's all I listened to. Back then, there were zero, count it with me, zero Christian rappers. Zero. If it had been a bad one, I would have listened to him or her. Didn't even matter. Zero. So all I had left was either the music that my parents listened to or Christian talk radio. And that's what I started to feast on was Christian talk radio. If you've ever listened to it, it's a smattering or whatever local pastor they could scramble up and talk into coming into the studio, maybe a larger syndicated voice like Andy Stanley or something like that to kind of fill in the gaps. Now, here's the thing about Christian radio. You never really know what you're going to get, right? I'm not going to say all of it is bad because all of it is not bad. I'm fine being held to saying a lot of it is bad, all right? I might even say most of it is bad, but there have been plenty of times where I'm driving down the road and I'm mad and I'm fuming and I start yelling at the radio today thinking, that is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. You just never know what you're gonna get. And one day, I listened to this guy, sounded very smart, very wise, very compelling, talk about how the Sabbath should be followed today as it is stated in the Old Testament, full stop. No ifs ands, or buts. And if you did not, you were breaking a commandment and therefore bringing judgment and wrath down upon your head. In fact, breaking the commandment to keep the Sabbath is as adultery, murder, or theft. Now listen, he knew more Hebrew than I did. And he had a lot of passages he rattled off. And he was compelling. And he was on the radio after all, right? And I wasn't. All I wanted to do was just please God. That's it. And so I was confused. I walked out of that moment. I stepped out of my car. I don't remember everything I listened to driving around. I remember that many moons ago. I was confused for years. Sabbath days were messy for me. I I didn't even know how to celebrate them. I, I didn't know what it meant to do one right, so I never felt like I was doing it right. I felt like I was doing it wrong. I, I never knew if I nailed it. 
So listen, I got to be honest. I thought about skipping this whole section, <laughs> not because it's unimportant, but because there's just a lot going on in the world right now. And, and to, to march through something like this, it doesn't seem like it's going to be very applicable. It doesn't seem like it's very timely with everything that's going on. I mean, we have this thing called COVID that's kind of looming. It's kind of heavy. on. I've had seven families text me and just in the last 48 hours or so saying, hey, I'm not going to be there Sunday. Just want you to let you know. Got a symptom. Know somebody who has it. I've got it. Something like that. And they're not here. It is a big deal. Afghanistan, a big deal. The hurricane that just ripped right through, a big deal. Haiti is still in rubble. Our economy is very frightening right now. There's a lot going on. And still, I think this is the perfect time to talk about it. Not because it's what's keeping us up at night. Of all the things you repent for in life, I doubt how you handle the Sabbath is one of them, right? Like me. But it's perfect because we're all exhausted. Exhausted in every direction. Physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, emotionally exhausted. We're even naming our fatigues. You can't just be fatigued anymore. It has to be a certain kind of fatigue, right? If you're in any, any kind of leadership right now, there's this thing called decision fatigue. I don't think it's just for leaders. I think if you're running a household, Right? I think you have decision fatigue. You know what it's like. You're forced to make so many high-value decisions with a lot on the line, with no playbook and no experience and no one telling you or helping you know which way to go, that you're just tired of making de- You're fatigued of decisions. There's a circadian fatigue, which after I read about what that was, I'm like, I think that just means being sleepy, right? I think that just means you need more sleep, and that's what it is. Mask fatigue, Zoom fatigue, societal fatigue, social media fatigue, poverty fatigue. We've all heard these, right? None of this is new. Compassion fatigue, which is what we're praying for right now. I mean, as we prayed this morning for our our frontline workers, we're praying for a resilience against compassion fatigue, volunteer fatigue, little league fatigue, so much taxing us. Let's just face the facts just for a moment and be honest. Your life is not going to slow down. It's not. I know in your imagination it's going to. In our imaginations, we are one season away from things finally slowing down, right? Aren't you just a week away, a month away? Aren't you just one project away from this promise rest where things are going to be different? We know that our current pace is unsustainable. And off in the distance, we can see this benchmark saying, as soon as you get to me, things will be easier. But we don't even recognize when we've gotten to it because we've already been swept up in the next thing because our pace is hurried and the broken cosmos does not care about your fatigue because on to the next thing. I think we all intuitively know this, but we're still caught saying things like, man, listen, as soon as October is over, as soon as October is over, I was just talking to someone about it this morning and they're like, dude, I'm going to be busy at work until probably mid-November. And that's what I've been saying. I've been saying the same thing. I caught myself telling Paula the other day, dude, as soon as Thanksgiving comes, okay, when Thanksgiving comes, it will all be different. And then I caught myself thinking, wait, have you met Thanksgiving? Things are not peaceful at Thanksgiving. I mean, for like five minutes, but that's it. Thanksgiving is even hectic. That's why I'm encouraged by this passage coming when it does. The Sabbath was created for the busy and the exhausted. The Sabbath was created for busy and exhausted worshipers. So if you're out of breath and you're out of time, out of inspiration, out of creativity, Sabbath rest is perfect for you. And we also have to face the fact that there is a part of us that likes the hectic activity. 
the over-busyness. We do like it. Because heavy activity, it signals that we might be achieving something in this life. And achievement means that we're closer to being significant, and if we're significant, there's validation in that. And that means that we're worthy. We have value. See, Western culture is absolutely obsessed with achievement. And it's mainly because we are hungry for value, hungry for significance in this world. I remember when Red Bull became so famous that it finally left a truck stop. I mean, if you're not old enough, you probably only know of Red Bull being in, like you could go into Publix and they have a giant Red Bull display. It did not used to be like that. It used to be like, you know, with, with all the weird stuff in a truck stop, you know, the fidget spinners, and there's like a couple Red Bulls there. That's how Red Bull started, right? It's been around since the 70s or the 80s, but I remember in college switching from Vivran to Red Bull, right? And if that doesn't sound healthy, it's because it's not. Vibrin were these tablets I would pop and eat like candy, like Pez, so that I can do all-nighters without getting tired, right? I'm sure it was super helpful for my heart. But I, would, I Vibrined my way through my first two years of, of college, and then Red Bull came out, and I swapped Vibrin out for Red Bull, not because of the taste. Back then, the taste is worse than it is now. It tastes like the color gray. Like somewhere between battery acid and rubbing alcohol with a little bit of citrus, something sprinkled in there. That's, no one drank it for the taste. No one was refreshed by a Red Bull. We drank it because we wanted to get stuff done. We wanted to achieve. We wanted to push forward. We're a Red Bull nation. They sell 8 billion cans a year. 8 billion cans a year. No time to rest. Listen, I love working hard. Working hard is not hard. Resting is hard. Resting is brutal because resting, by definition, is not working. Resting is more than not working, but at its basic minimum, it's not working. And if we're not working, there's a problem because if we're not working, it means we're not achieving. And if we're not achieving, well, then we might not be as significant as we want to be. And if we're not significant and validated, well, then that means we're nothing. And if we're nothing, that's a special living hell for a lot of us. And this is mostly true in the Western nations. This is why in other cultures, they'll take a nap in the middle of the day. Have you ever heard that and thought, it's time for a nap in the middle? We're busy reaching for a large silver can and drinking it and bragging about how much B12 is in it because we don't want to be indicted by how much caffeine we're giving ourselves, right? You're not drinking that for the B12. Come on now, right? We don't like to rest. In our culture, rest is viewed as the opposite of achievement because no one gets a blue ribbon for resting. No one comes by and gives you a high five because you are celebrating rest like a champ. Nobody does that. We do not celebrate it in our society at all. So regardless of whether you feel like you have no time to rest or you just don't have a taste for rest, I think we can all agree on one thing, and that's that the rested version of you is the best version of you. The rested version of you, the one with the full tank, that's the best version of you, right? Your worst version is when you're fatigued, overachieving, spinning plates so fast you can't even keep up. Listen, nobody likes you when you're like that. Let me just tell you because I love you. You're horrible to be around, right? No one's delightful. The rested version of you is different. The rested version of you is more joyful, more innovative, more creative, more thoughtful, more giving, less stressed, less angry, less critical, more generous, loving, forgiving. The rested version of you struggles with sin less. 
That's the better version of us. And this matters because as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, our attempt as a people of God is to what we said last week is re-Edenize Knoxville, to carry the gospel in a clear, fresh, and compelling way, in new ways for new people, in a way that they can understand it and become disciples of God. And that matters. That matters. And the rested versions of us carry that out with greater efficiency and joy. It's going to be the rested version of us that matters when we steward our careers and our marriages and our families and our money and our time and our talents. It matters. It matters when we make disciples. Sabbath rest, which I'll call the rest that seeks and celebrates the Lord. We can just maybe put that as a quick definition for something that's hard to define. It's a rest that seeks and celebrates the Lord. That is where you're going to find sanity and perspective and joy. Now, what does this have to do with Exodus, right? What does it have to do with our passage today? We have spent a considerable amount of time looking at how the book of Exodus points to Jesus in freshly detailed ways that we would typically miss if we just rolled through it as if it was its own standalone epic story, right? Which it is not. Augustine said once that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I believe that. What that means is that the story arc that we've been traveling through in the book of Exodus of a people imprisoned and enslaved to a people in the wilderness, to a people in paradise, as we see this story arc, listen, it doesn't, it's not a standalone story. It doesn't just stand by itself, but it is welded to the person of Christ or else it's just a dumb story about Moses and some vague object lessons that we might be able to pull out of there as he leads some people through a place that we're never going to go to. doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't be very good to read that at all. But Exodus isn't even about Moses. It's about Christ. Exodus is about Christ, who is a better Moses. Just think about some of the things, just a few of the things we've noticed just in the last several weeks. Just a few. Moses, who escaped death as a child, is simply a shadow of Jesus who would come as a different Moses, who would also escape death as a child because God would have his hand on him even more than Moses to deliver a nation. Moses, who would be an advocate for an enslaved people, is simply a shadow. It's just a shadow of Jesus who would come and stand in the gap and be an advocate for a deeper, wider, more enslaved people. Moses, who would show signs and miracles to reveal to all watching eyes how powerful and good and thoughtful God is. Is that simply a shadow? All of that was just a shadow of Jesus, who also would come and show miracles and signs, even leaving a tomb to show how powerful and thoughtful and good and kind God was. Moses, who we would catch several weeks ago, we looked at how he stood up on a hill and held his arms out so that his family, the people of God, would be victorious in battle below. That's all just a shadow. We saw that. It's all just a shadow that Jesus, 1,600 years later, would stand on his own hill with his arms outstretched so that his people, his family, would succeed against death itself. Moses, who would lead his people through the waters of the Red Sea, simply a shadow. It's just a shadow of the fact that Jesus would come and lead his people through the waters of baptism while he himself would be closed in on by the water. The Passover lamb, whose blood would be spilled and then put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would know punishment has already fallen in this household. I'm moving on. All of that's just a shadow. 
because Jesus would be the blemishless Passover lamb whose blood would be applied to our hearts so that the angel of death would stop and say, punishment has already fallen, and then move on. The rock that gave water to thirsty people whenever it was struck, simply a shadow of Jesus who would be our rock and would be struck by us and would feed us more than just water because we're a much thirstier people. The manna that fed rebellious people as much as they would ever need every day, simply a shadow of Christ who would come and inhabit and be with us and be bread and be sustenance to anyone as much as they can hold. The tabernacle that we saw last week that held the special presence of God, simply a shadow. It was all just a shadow of the fact that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, would come in tent with us, tabernacle with us, and be with us. Even the veil that separated man from God and the holy of holies was simply a shadow of the veil that would be Jesus' skin that would be ripped to join us to the holy of holies once and for all. The sacrificial offerings given to cleanse, to cleanse sin from sinners before the sight of God, simply a shadow, the whole system, the whole sacrificial system, a shadow. Because Jesus would come and he would spill his blood to cover our sins before God, not requiring any more. The priests, the priests that would come and connect and mediate the relationship between man and God, all of that, the whole priestly system, simply a shadow, just a shadow. The fact that Jesus would come as our last priest to mediate and stand in the gap and contend and connect both man and God. Even the clothing, the priestly clothing, was just special, just to the priest. Only a priest could wear it, simply a shadow. All of those chapters talking about the special stones, just a, just a shadow. Jesus would come, not wearing a robe, but be cloaked in righteousness. And it wouldn't be just for him, but he would give his righteousness to us, take our unrighteousness upon himself. The priestly consecration, where oil would be poured over their head so they could be ready for service, just a shadow. It's just a shadow. Because Christ would come and it wouldn't just be oil readying him for service. It would be the Holy Spirit himself as he was baptized in the water and sent off into service. A lot of ink is spilled over these many chapters. And when we see Exodus, we have a window into the Gospels. Straight up. And when you're reading the Gospels, you finally see Exodus as complete. Jesus decodes many of these chapters for us, reinforcing how brilliantly thoughtful God is. This, this is why the guy on the radio was wrong. This is why the guy on the radio was dead wrong. His understanding of Exodus had nothing to do with Jesus. All of these things were not shadows of Jesus at all. In fact, these things he was so proud of telling me about in Hebrew cast a long shadow on me. He was wrong. Paul says so in Colossians. He tells a young church, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And look, look at his language. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Author of Hebrews says something very similar. He says, those things serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Listen, the reason I'm taking you through that nickel tour of Exodus is because today is no different. The Sabbath is a shadow of something much more brilliant, a substance much more robust. It's Christ. This is one reason that in Mark, Jesus says he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's referring to it himself. He is the substance. 
Now, it's good to know that God is glorified when his people rely upon him. This is why the original people received the Sabbath. This is why God is so serious about it in this chapter here, mentioning death three times. God is glorified when his people rely upon him. He built a God-reliant people by plucking them out of a self-reliant Egypt. It's important to remember that. We hammered that hard in the first few weeks. He was making a different people. He is a different God, right? They had to rely on God for everything. They had to rely on God to be redeemed from slavery. They had to rely upon God just to get across the Red Sea. They were stuck if it weren't for God. They had to rely on God for food. They had to rely on God for water, for guidance, for victory in battle, for instruction, for leadership, for the promised land. They didn't get anything from their own hands. And the Sabbath celebrates this. His people would not be like Egypt who relied on their own strength. So one day out of seven, just like it says in the creation mandate, one day out of seven, they would put down the plow, they would put down the tools as a sign of submission and reliance. A day where they said, we rely on you. We rely on you. A day of resting from their own achievement to celebrate God's achievement. This is hard, isn't it? hard. Resting is brutally hard. Listen, I'm an overachiever by nature, which for me, it means nothing I've ever done in the past will probably ever be good enough again. If there's any endeavor I'm in, any activity, and there's an achievement meter, some way to measure achievements, I won't just look to peg it out. I will look to overachieve. I want to overachieve. It's just the way I'm wired. The thought of underachieving For me, it gives me nightmares, to be totally honest with you. On my worst days, I just see it as a totally wasted life to underachieve. Now, oddly, in our culture, overachieving is seen as success. We celebrate it here. It's applauded. It's not lamentable, as it probably should be. Let me just tell you right now, as someone who is a classic overachiever, not all ambition is holy. It's not it's weird how we handle it here because we could look at a young woman up here and say, listen she's, listen, she's an overachiever. And all of us would go, wow, great. But if we looked at the same woman and said, listen, she's an alcoholic, nobody would be like, hey, that's, that's fantastic. Both are telling lies about God, though, are they not? One might be searching for value or significance, whereas the latter is looking for comfort and escape, but they both tell lies about God. Again, there is such thing as holy ambition. It's probably another message entirely. But the difference between a holy ambition and unholy overachieving is self-reliance for self-glory. Self-reliance for self-glory. So for all the overachievers in the room, because I seriously doubt I'm alone, you probably will get merit badges in this world. But God is deadly, deadly serious about people not being self-reliant, even if the culture rewards it even if. And I think as a high achiever or an overachiever, we believe a lie. We believe the lie that God does not bestow significance and value through what God has done. We don't believe it, so we gotta go get it on our own. God's achievement is not stellar enough. It's not polished enough. It's not impressive enough. No one here applauds it, so we have to go out and get that achievement and that significance on a basis that our culture does applaud. If God does not achieve for me, I've got to do it myself. This is why if you're an overachiever in the room, that's why being small, unnoticed, disappeared, 
uncelebrated can be very difficult, very difficult. Without somebody there to say, well done, it's very difficult. And this is probably also why rest can be so hard. If this is why rest is hard for you, I want you to recognize as much as you can, this is a sin. It's a sin. It's not your personality. I get it. We all have personalities. It's a sin. It requires repentance. It's not helping you. It's bringing no glory to God to behave as if Jesus and that achievement was futile. But back to the original question, really, what are we to do with it now? This thing called the Sabbath that goes on forever. What are we supposed to do with it now? Quick answer is, is you are not under the law. This is what it says in Romans, right? You are not under the law, but under grace, he says in Romans 6. So no, you do not need to treat this day any more special than any other day. The guy on the radio, he had a theology with a Jesus-shaped hole in it. His Old Testament didn't showcase the gospel. It just carried law. It just kept carrying law forward. It sounded right. It's reading right out of the Bible. That's why it was so confusing for me. That's why it was so hard for me to embrace and get my arms around. But listen, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is the substance. He is our Sabbath. He labored in his life and his death so that you could rest. He achieved so that you could rest. He produced so that you could rest. He worked so that you could rest. We have been validated, not by our achievements. We've been validated by his achievements. This is why he says in Colossians 2, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath described in Exodus, that's a shadow. Jesus casts the shadow all the way back to the Old Testament. So no, you're not under any obligation. Listen, let me say it clearly in case you missed that. You're under zero obligation to take a Sabbath day. We're a Sabbath minute. None. No obligation doesn't affect God's affection towards you. He doesn't beat you if you don't. There's no, there's no corporal punishment on this. There's no capital offense attached to it anymore. And yet, and yet, the Sabbath is a refreshing gift that celebrates our reliance upon God. He is glorified when we worship him through the Sabbath. He's glorified. And it, it returns us to a version of ourselves that is most joyful. It returns us to a better version. It brings perspective. Sabbath actually recreates you and me for joy. It recreates us for joy. I will say I'm a fan of one day in seven. I am a fan of that as far as taking a Sabbath day. I think God built a rhythm. I think every time we've tried to innovate on it, we have failed. I don't think I've only mentioned it up here once many years ago, but anytime I get to speak to uh, pastors or church planters and leadership forums, um, I always reference the French calendar. If you've never heard of the French calendar, it's because it was stupid and it's not around anymore. But the French calendar, it came about during the French Revolution when what they were trying to do is cleanse anything that looked religious from society, right? So what they did is they started with the calendar, which is dripping with religious connotations. And they turned it from a seven-day week to a 10-day week. So you'd have three work weeks in a month, right? I know it's hard for us to wrap our head around that. We're like, wait, how does that work? A lot of days and then a weekend. That's how it worked. So 10-day weeks, they were fascinated with the number 10. That was the same exact time period we got the metric system, right? Which is why all of our toolboxes are messier than they really need to be, if we're all honest, right? They loved the metric system. We had this dumb calendar. It only lasted for 12 years. And this is one of the reasons historians say they hit delete on that calendar. Not the biggest reason, but one 
one of the ancillary reasons is because the working class had no time to rest. There's no rest. They couldn't take a break. They couldn't take a Sabbath of any kind. One day out of seven requires incredible intentionality. It's never going to happen accidentally. If this is something that you actually want in life, if you're hearing me and you're like, you know, I would like to take a Sabbath day, what you need to know is you're going to have to strategically place it, fight for it, and practice it. What you also need to know is it's going to be incredibly inconvenient because all the cool stuff happens on a Sabbath day. It's not just inconvenient for you. It's going to be inconvenient for all those around you. They're going to want you to do something with them, and you're going to have to say, no, I'm out. I'm out. I can't do it. This needs to be a day where I'm not working really hard on that. This needs to be a day that I put something down because I want to retreat into the Lord, not away from the Lord. What you do on a day like that is totally up to you. You discern that. I could bore you with the long list of things that you can and do on a Sabbath. There are books that talk about that, but you know. You know what refreshes you. You know what provokes godly wonder in you. You know what builds joy in you. I was talking to Charlie about this before the service, and we both heard this quote. We don't know where we heard it. I'm sure somebody originally came up with it, but it was that if you work with your hands all week, Maybe a good Sabbath answer is for you to work with your mind and your creativity on your day off, that day where you're resting in the Lord. If you work with your mind and your creativity all week, which is something that I do, then maybe working with your hands could be an answer for that. And I I find that to be very true for me, for me. For some of you, it's reading. For others, you've been reading all week, so it's going to be journaling for you. Some, it's going to be fishing. I don't want to fish. That's a waste of a perfectly good Sabbath day, right? For some of you, it's going to be sleeping, running, brewing something, singing something. It's up to you. What refreshes you in the Lord? What can you do to the glory of God? What recalibrates you? What charges the battery? But finding and meditating on Jesus on these days, that's imperative. You're not retreating from Jesus. You're retreating into Jesus. That's the subtle switch right there. Like Mary, you're choosing something better by sitting at his feet, right? But listen, not all of us can fork out a day out of seven. Just in me saying that, you're like, I've got like nine kids and each of them are in like three leagues. I don't see that happening, dude. Not, Not for like 20 years, you know. But listen, start with a moment. Start with a Sabbath moment. There's this, there is this peculiar little part of the Bible I love in Mark. Mark 6.31, we'll put it on the screen. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They couldn't take a whole day off because of what was going on at the time. But they needed some moment to process. They, they needed to defrag the old computer. They needed some moment to assimilate everything they just saw and experienced into what they know about God and know about themselves. They needed to very basically recharge, rest, and recalibrate before they went into more ministry, which they did right after this passage. What does a desolate moment look like for you in the middle of a frenetic day? What does that look like? With so much on the line, so much demand, so much need, Jesus encouraged rest, even if it was just for a moment. Even if it was just stepping off the track for a moment. I will say practically, and I'm going to get intensely practical here. For me, I take Mondays for this day 
Sunday's a pretty expensive day for me emotionally, so Mondays have got to be my day. My best Mondays, I'm working with my hands. My best Mondays, I'm in nature at some point, running up and down something where there's no people. On my best Mondays, I'm device-free. On my best Mondays, I'm not reading because I read all week, but I do have a journal. I do have a journal. It'll be different for you, right? But on hard days, when I have to take a Sabbath moment and I have to step off the track, I take a moment to recalibrate by bringing perspective to the work that I'm doing. I tell other pastors, it's preaching the gospel to your workload. I mean, it it, it gives perspective to all the weeds that you're moving through, all the minutia of your job. It gives you an opportunity to step off and say, why am I doing this again? Why is this important to me? Why, why, Why did I even start this? How about some harder questions? Am I free to fail at this? Am I okay if nobody notices this? Will I be able to sleep at night if this thing fails? Those are even better questions, right? Listen, all of this is inconsistent and messy. All of it is. This is why I say it takes practice. I had some great rhythms before COVID, just like many of you did. And ever since COVID came, it's like someone took the edge of sketch and just shook it as hard as they can. And I feel like I've been rebuilding different rest rhythms ever since. Because sometimes what we used to rest yesterday ran its course. And it's going to need to be something a little different today. And you should feel free in your Sabbath to say, that used to refresh and recalibrate me. Now it's a little bit more like work. I'm going to do something different. You should feel free to do that free to do that. For the longest time for me, I would stop two or three times in the middle of a busy work day and think back over the last four hours and say to myself, where have I seen Jesus most prominently in the last four hours? Where has his grace been more substantive that I can say thank you for? And in the last four hours, where have I carried the most shame? Where have I felt the most disconnected from the Lord? And how can I carry that to him and take a deep breath and say, thanks for loving me? But that was not as helpful in COVID as it was before COVID. You decide what it is for you. You discern that. But listen, you are free to blow by all of this. You are free to not do a thing about this. But you're also free to celebrate a spiritual discipline like Sabbath. Joy and happiness in Jesus is not going to grow very deep without these desolate moments and desolate days of rest. No, God's not going to strike you dead. There's no capital offense attached to this. Jesus himself was struck dead on the cross because we would fail at this. (laughs) So there's no more penalty of death on this. But there is a better version of you on the other side of rest. There's a better worshiper on the other side of rest, a better disciple on the other side of rest. That we do know. So if you decide to blow it off, that's fine. Ask yourself the question, why? Why am I blowing it off? If it's, Luke, I can't worship God with a sabbatical because this. Because because you're too busy? Is it because you're too busy? Is it because you're too hungry for the achievements of the world? Why would you struggle with something like this? Why would it be hard? That would be the question I'd want you to ask yourself. God understands busy seasons. But then again, that's what brings value to putting the plow down. It's expensive to put one day out of seven down or one minute out of seven or one hour out of seven or however you decide to dice it up. It's expensive. That's what brings value to it. If it was easy and free, it would be value less. 
And so listen, to be even more practical, I want to help here. As a church, we want to help you as you maybe attempt or dip your toe in the water of something like a Sabbath practice or a Sabbath rhythm. Uh, You probably got one of these coming in. If you did not get one of these, feel free to grab one of these on the way out. We have a copy for every single person in the church. If you're married, get two copies, right? Because I don't know if you're like me, but my wife, she uses a different way of marking up and interacting with her books than I do. And so she doesn't like the stuff I write on there, and I can't stand the stuff that she writes in there. So I just want my own copy, okay? So just grab a copy for you. Grab a copy for your spouse and go through this. All it is is it's a book. It's not the best book I've ever read in my life, straight up, but it's on that shelf. It's probably in the top ten for me. It's a book of Christology. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland wrote it. Um, he is part of the Ortland family. And he wrote what, what I would call a Christology, which is the theology of Christ. But this book is going to focus strictly on the heart, the heart, the feeling center of God himself for sinners and sufferers. And I'm telling you, these moments where I just step off the track and read a three-page chapter, that's all they are, I'm like, wow, thank you. And it brings perspective and sanity and clarity. And I could jump right back into the fray. We got it originally with the intention that everybody would travel through it with their DNA group. I know most of you are in a DNA group, and this would give some sort of a railing to what you guys discuss. Sometimes we can be in the DNAs and not really have a, a direction to go. This can give some good, solid direction. So if you didn't grab one of these on the way in, definitely grab one on the way out. You can also find some material for spiritual disciplines, including Sabbath rest, on our website. Go to resources at the very top and pull it down and you'll see spiritual rhythms and disciplines. And there's tons of good class material notes on ways that you can practice this thing called rest. Where you can be in that boat with Jesus for a moment, with his disciples, out on a lake. And you're all eating beans or whatever they were eating, but no one's really talking. You're just processing what just happened and getting ready for what's about to happen just in a desolate place for a desolate moment, being recharged. 